0: Good morning everyone, if you would turn in your New Testaments to the uh, letter of Paul to the Corinthians, the first one. We're going to start a series of lessons back in the New Testament again, uh, and we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians. Uh, The city of Corinth actually still exists, it's uh, um, still a a port city uh, in and around the area of Greece. And um, it's an interesting place. And when we read the letter, we're going to find out uh, a bit of the history of the Corinthians, the way that they were, the way that they acted, uh, the way that Paul reacts to them when he writes this letter to them. Um, Corinth was a tumultuous city, (laughs) to to be sure. It was some place... Uh, that had a lot of change that was going on in it. Uh, change was the constant, as the saying goes, in Corinth uh, for much of its history into the modern age. Uh, Corinth was was beautiful. It was a uh, it was a, a Roman city for the most part, um, and it uh, and it just was a city of commerce, of wealth, um, of <laughs> <laughs> but it also had lots of things going on in it that should not be. Um, it was sort of like a Atlantic City or a Las Vegas or a, or a Los Angeles or something like that would be today, but exponentially so, I, I believe, because they, they were even greater and, and more rich in that time than I think even our cities are. However, Corinth is very similar to a modern city. And uh, if you've ever lived or been around a modern city, especially a metropolis of any kind, uh, that would be exactly, well not exactly, but very close to what uh, Corinth kind of was. And it makes it perfect uh, as a city for modern illustrations and modern looks into our own lives and our way of doing things. Um, Corinth was also religiously pluralistic. And I think we should remember that word. Uh, you hear it a lot in our day and age. Uh, pluralism is the kind of thing that is praised in our day and age. Diversity, multiculturalism. Uh, you hear those kinds of words. These were things that applied to, um, to Corinth as well. And, um, and again, we hear the praises of such things in our day and age as, uh, needful. As, as very important to our own way of life so that we can progress to an even better way of life. And that's exactly what uh, the people of the time, though this letter being written, believed. And looking back at that, maybe we can find a, a good way to look ahead, since we are uh, very equal to the task of what Corinth was equal to, at that time. And I think we we often forget, we willfully forget that we've made all the historical mistakes we're ever going to make, <laughs> and uh, we just keep making them uh, over and over again. and And that may do well for people of the world, and they may be content with that. But we as Christians, we have to think of things more clearly. We have to look behind us. We have to look ahead of us uh, with greater uh, caution, with greater uh, spirituality, with greater uh, love for the will of God and the Word of God and understand how things can go. Uh, in Corinth, you had, of course, diversity. Uh, there were Greek temples to all the Roman gods, especially Diana and, and goddesses and things like that. There were even shrines to the, uh, to the mythological beliefs of the Egyptians, and there was at least, and I think only one, Jewish uh, synagogue in the area. So they represented, ancient ancient Corinth represented all of the religions of the area, and that's what they thought would take them into the future, and they thought that was best for their people and their way of life. Now, Christians also are in Corinth at this time, and uh, by 55 AD, which is believed to be about the time that this letter was written, they are practicing uh, Christianity and practicing it very poorly. And so when we look at these lessons that Paul gives, we're looking at that. Now, the, uh, the thing is, is that it's what we're going to read and what we see from Paul writing in this very beginning of the letter is that he's addressing divisions. And the first few chapters of uh, Corinthians are focused on the divisions themselves. Um, It's uh, it's easy to see that. It's easy to see that when you have a pluralistic society, that it's going to fall into division. And we should remember that as well. Um, I've had students at school that tell me, well, I believe in everything. And then I tell them, so you don't believe in anything and And they just kind of look at me <laughs> and uh, and I don't think people tend to think that way anymore. They understand if you believe in everything, if you think everything is logical, everything is reasonable, and everything has merit, then you don't believe anything has merit because one isn't better than the other one, one isn't more reasonable, more logical, it becomes this mismatch of things that simply don't make sense. And that is exactly what we saw in Corinth, and that's exactly what we see even in our lifetime today. And so Paul delivers this very beautiful introduction to this letter. And I want us to read these first ten verses together because it's beautiful and it's sobering at the same time. And that pretty much sums up the way that Paul writes things. He writes beautifully, but very sobering. of God that was given you in Jesus Christ, that in every way you were enriched in Him, all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, (laughs) God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, Our Lord, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That beautiful introduction now leads to Paul's caveat, his warning is cautious regard for what has happened. He's telling them, these are all the things that are supposed to be Christians. The testimony being confirmed, the gifts being given to you, uh, the, the sustenance of Jesus Christ until the very end because you can be guiltless before Him in judgment. And he says, but there can be no division in that. And so divisions uh, are arising, and now we must learn about them. And it's appropriate uh, that we learn about them, isn't it? It's appropriate that we look at it. Because if we say, well, we are not divided. You know, we read in class this morning people who were justifying themselves because they were the descendants of Abraham. <laughs> you know, and they thought, well, our future is set. You know, we're okay. We don't have to look back and who Abraham was, just by the very fact that we are the descendants of Abraham, we're going to be fine. And we can tend to do that. We're here, it's Sunday morning, we're together, uh, we're sitting in the, in the same proximity, nobody's throwing books or rocks at each other, nobody's glaring at each other, at least as far as I can tell, nobody's glaring over at each other or giving people dirty looks or anything. Okay, and nobody's saying nasty things to each other. We have, uh, uh a, a unity that we enjoy or that we believe we enjoy so still it's appropriate for us to understand what causes division so that we are not guilty of it ever and uh because the best way to avoid division or to overcome it is just to never allow it to begin and uh when we allow it to begin as the corinthians were doing uh it can be devastating and Paul says what's important is, with addressing division is that we understand who we are. Now, as Christians, we always say, you know, I know who I am. And we need to be sure about that. It needs to be not something that we're saying, but something that we are convinced of. In our mind and our heart and something that we actually are doing. The way that we live our lives. And that's what Paul says there in verse 2. He says, they are called to be saints together. They are sanctified. Not only they, but all of those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are some terribly important elements there. We are sanctified individuals. We are to be apart from the world. In the world, not of the world, right? And divisions only happen whenever we forget that. We forget that we are in the kingdom. You know, if you're in the kingdom and you're the prince, uh, what is your power if you don't have a blacksmith? You don't you don't have any power. If you're in the kingdom and and you are are the knight, the warrior, uh, what is your hope if there are no serfs taking care of the horses <laughs> and making sure that your sword is sharpened? Well, what are you if that's the, the... You're nothing. You're going to be defeated. You're going to come to naught. And that's the thing that, that Paul is talking about here in Corinth. They need to understand who they are. And if they're showing division, they stopped understanding who they were. Because that's what causes division. We are all very intricate, very unique, very valuable parts of the configuration that the kingdom is. If we understand that, we act very differently. We don't look to who others are or who others are not. We don't look to what others have or what others have not. We look to who we are. We look to what our responsibilities are in this beautiful configuration of believers and people and functioning that is the spiritual kingdom under God who gave his only son to rule it. And if we value ourselves, and we value those others around us similarly, we're going to learn what kingdom means. And we're going to learn what the kingdom work is. And we're going to learn what true unity really is. And that's what Paul is hoping to do here. Paul is hoping to teach the Corinthians who have so much, uh, very so many various gifts and, and, and blessings it, to work together to be as strong as they possibly can. And he also tells them that division is avoided whenever we understand what the purpose of God is. See, in our day and age, the purpose of God is to entertain me or to make me feel good or something like that. Or, or to provide something for me or my family. God is basically a spiritual welfare office for of us. You know, That's basically all he, all he has become in the minds of modern religion. If I don't feel elated uh, after I'm done worshiping, well, I must be in the wrong place, right? And then we get that feeling uh, in our minds. And, and we have to forget about all that. We have to understand what God's purposes are. And, and Paul demands, in verses 4-7 through seven there, that God has given us His grace. That's what His purpose is. And that is a great blessing, and that's a great responsibility. And so with Corinth, God's grace provides for each of us, like we said, our own intricate, unique, valuable kind of way to faithfully execute the charge of our life. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to argue. We're not supposed to divide. I have abilities that are unique to me. I have abilities that are unique to me in the kingdom. Uh, I have a life that I share with all of you. Uh, I can't be Frank. I can't be Jared, Edwin. I can't be anybody else. I can't be them and they cannot be me. Well, who's the greatest of all of those? Well, none of them. Uh, no one is greater than the other because we each serve a purpose in the kingdom. And we must understand the kingdom will be diminished without us executing what that purpose is. That's a huge responsibility. Am I really important? We say that all the time. Every year when it's time to vote, right? I hear people saying that all the time. Does my vote really matter? It's just one vote. Of course it matters. It matters, and when it doesn't matter, you are, you are feeding what's wrong with the entire system. And that's the same way we must think as well, but even more so, exponentially greater, because ours is a kingdom work. Does what I do, do the little things that I can do, do those really matter? Does whatever little I can give, whatever little I am able to, to pump out, am I able? Does that really, really matter? And God says yes. And Paul tells the Corinthians, yes, it's terribly important. Because God's grace is given to us for that very purpose. And we have to remember that. We can also avoid division by overlooking the circumstances. You see that in verses 7 and 8 there again. So you're not lacking as you wait for the revealing of Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We only divide when we lose our vision. When we forget our mission in God. And that is to be guiltless before God and we look at that sometimes and i think we don't believe we can do that <laughs> and i think we look at that and say i can't believe i can't be guiltless before god i feel guilty all the time you know and and i understand that but we have to be able to look at at who we are and see that there's a distinction there i'm sinful You know, who are you? (laughs) You You're sinful too. We are all sinful individuals. But what Paul is calling them to here is is a lack of guilt. That's a distinction. Sin is the state that I stay in if I continue in it. If I repent of my sin, if I walk away from it, I'm guiltless. Now, I may feel bad. I may feel, quote-unquote, guilty for what I have done, granted. uh, You don't want to just fool yourself in any way. But before God, you are guiltless. That's a totally different thing. Your life is not yours. Your future is not yours. If it were, we would all be doomed because we can be gloomy guts in a a split second, can't we? But God doesn't see things that way. And I believe that's what Paul is trying to desperately hard to tell the corinthians and across time we need to know that as well if i'm looking towards the city of god if i am always looking towards the streets of gold don't you love reading that in revelation it's just such a beautiful scene of heaven everything here is going to pale in comparison it's a great habit to get into. Whenever things get tough here, whenever things get challenging here, think of what John was looking at in heaven. Streets of gold, polished, mirror perfection. You could see yourself in them. I can't even begin to imagine how beautiful that would be. And, and if we would do that, then everything here would just pale in comparison to that. Everything here could not quench our zeal and our faith. I could actually feel guiltless before God. You could feel guiltless before God. Because we uh, we avoid being sinful. We repent whenever we are sinful. And then we can feel great joy. What if somebody insults us though? So what? So what? I'm, I'm not looking at the insult. I'm looking towards the city of God. What if somebody's really thoughtless when they when they confront me when they when they're dealing with me? What about that? So what? Look past that. Look toward the city of God. What if people are mean? Joe, <laughs> what if they're downright mean? Look past it to the city of God. It will pale in comparison. This is what Paul is implying here. All the things that you're doing to one another, all the things that you're dividing over, they need to to be done with. You need to push those out of the way. And sure, we all deal with those things. We even deal with tragedy. We deal with losses in our life that hurt us to the core of who we are. But look to the city of God. Look to the streets of gold. Everything will pale in comparison. And then we can maintain unity and overcome that division. Paul also says division is avoided when we realize that we are in fellowship with Jesus. Brethren and friends, this is the Christ, the Son of God Himself. Jesus is the Son of God, always will be. He's the Savior of the world, the Messiah. What would your life be if Jesus was sitting right next to you in the pew right now? What would your life be like if He was helping you cook dinner every night? What would your life be like if He was sitting in the front room reading your Scriptures with you and talking to you? What kind of a personality would you have? What kind of a personality would I have? You know, Jesus is here. We better be a little straighter than we usually are. This is God in the flesh, people. He didn't always get that reaction, but he would probably get that from us, right? He would probably get, whoa, (laughs) he's right there. He's sitting right there in the pew. I better not glare at my spouse. Mm -mm, No, no, he's he's sitting right here in the pew with me. You know, I better not say something bad about brother or sister so-and-so, even though I really want to. I better not do that. Jesus is right there. You know, he's standing right there beside me. He's sitting right there with me. We likely would be very different. And, but, and so therefore, his absence physically is our greatest temptation, isn't it? His absence, he's not here to give that look. I always think about Peter whenever he denied him three times and heard the rooster crow and Jesus looked over at him. It makes me melt every time I read it. And I I just think, you know, and I just wonder what that look was like. Depending on your personality, that look is more like a, you know, I told you. You know, uh, or how you look at that passage, it could be that Jesus just simply looks over, just looks at him. Like a brother would look at another brother. And that, that's what hits me. It would be easier if Jesus was going, I told you. you know. It would be easier for me to, to take Jesus. But for Jesus to be uh, being carried off, to be crucified, and He just looks over at Peter and for Peter to see that. I can't imagine the devastation that would have gone through his mind. can't imagine the burden. But look at what it did for Peter. Look at that. Jesus was right there, and and Peter, he he lost it for a while, but man, when he came back, he came back strong, didn't he? And see, Jesus' absence then, for us, is a terrible, terrible temptation. Because we forget, he is right here. He is right next to us. He is sitting there next to you in the pew. He's He's standing over your shoulder, watching you as you work, as you talk with others. He's standing in the hallway of your house, observing the front room as you go about your conversations and your your work and your your things that you are doing. He is right there. And, And because He is, we need to adopt a mindset that He is there, right with us. Jesus Christ is within earshot, isn't He? (laughs) He is within view of every utterance and every action that we take and that we say. And how different we would be if we were always in the mindset. Because look at what Paul now says to these Corinthian brethren. Beautiful introduction warning. And then he goes into these verses with the devastating consequence of division. Look with me, if you will, there at at 1 Corinthians, uh, the first chapter, verses 11 through 17. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Whoa, 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 just a second there. Wait just a second these divisions can cause the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. First off, let's think about Chloe. How would you feel about her? How would you feel about Chloe? If Paul, if this letter was read in our assembly and it said, you know, hey, You know, Linda wrote a letter to us, and uh, this is what we read. How would we feel about Linda? And you're like, Linda, why did you write, Linda, why did you tell the truth about us? Isn't that the way it would basically be? Linda would probably go, well, you're supposed to tell the truth about everything, aren't you? And she would be right, just like she always is when she asks a question like that. Yes, you're absolutely right. You're supposed to tell the truth about people, aren't you? And we would be mad because she told the truth about us. Isn't that a wonderful society that we live in? I hate you. Why? You told the truth about me. Oh, a lie would have been better. I would have appreciated that more. That doesn't make any sense, does it? And yet we do it all the time. We call that being nice to people. (laughs) Don't we? We're nice to people because we lie flat in their face. Have we changed? Have our focuses changed? Have our attitudes changed? You know, Chloe would probably be in a lot of trouble in this day and age. She would be hated, maybe avoided. Chloe revealed the division. It was a a heroic and faithful thing for her to do. She revealed the problem. She didn't stay part of the problem. She became part of the solution. She should be regarded for that. And Paul does regard her for that. Because religion is not about this cookie cutter kind of thing. It's not about looking at life and and acknowledging uh, that everything is okay. See, our pluralistic society and the fact that we value diversity and multiculturalism and all of that kind of stuff, to the point that it affects faith anyway, Is, is the thing that, that's the problem. It's invaded the faith. Well, can I adopt a little bit from this over here? Because see, I was raised this way, and my parents would like it if we would just entertain a little bit of this in the Christian faith, so that we could, oh, and by the way, I've got an aunt and an uncle that I really love. Now, they're a different religion too, and they like to do this, so could we maybe, you know, insert that over here, so that they could feel comfortable, and then we could all come together and be happy in one little group, and no. No. No, the church is God-oriented, not aunt or uncle, not mama or daddy, not son or daughter-oriented. It is God-oriented, and it is run and believed and faithfully executed by the will of God, which is revealed in the Bible. We even have a manual, people. I mean, we don't even have to worry about guessing. It's all right there, and that's what we have to do. And see, that's what Paul is addressing here. This is how division happens. This is how division should be exposed. And this is how division should be dealt with. Paul is clear. Sameness in mind, sameness in judgment, faith and unity. How does that look to us? How does unity and faith and judgment and mind look to us? Is it cookie cutter? Well, when I read that chapter in Matthew, you better come to the same conclusion I come to, buddy, or we don't have unity. Well, what if half the brethren come to one conclusion and half the brethren come to another? <laughs> You know what chapter I'm talking about, right? Matthew, is it about the end of the world or is it only about the destruction of Jerusalem? Somebody asked me that one time. Is this about the end of the world or the destruction of Jerusalem? And I said, who cares? What's the message of Matthew 14? I don't care about historical events when it comes to faith and the salvation of the immortal soul. I care about what the lesson is, the spiritual lesson that we can learn. You and I disagree on dates, historical facts, and and the color of somebody's tunic. I don't care. I don't care about those kinds of things. They're nice. They're wonderful to know. But we are studying for the purpose of keeping unity, keeping fellowship with Christ, not the opposite. As one brother demanded, this is about the gospel, allowing the gospel to define our mental framework and our world view. I have brethren all the time that disagree with a conclusion I made. I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm okay with that. However, if it's a doctrinal matter, I'm not okay with that. If I stood up here and said, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Somebody would come up to me, probably all of you, appropriately, so would come up to me and go, hey, Joe, you can't teach that. The Bible says you've got to be baptized to be saved. You know, that's right. i got to think about that. Or I don't think about that, and then you kick me out. That's the way it works. Okay, that's the way it works. But that's not the way we like it. That's not the way we like to feel about things, the way that things feel to us. No, no, that's, that's exactly the opposite of what he's teaching. He's not teaching this. He's very clear. This is not about robotic, rehearsed agreement. We've said this for a thousand years, so we're going to say it for another thousand years. I don't care how many scriptures you can pull up, to the opposite. That is completely divisive. We are striving together, leaving behind selfishness and arrogance. So we meet, don't we? We meet together in this place. We study. We discuss. We even disagree, but we never, never abandon the faith or one another. We are here, and it's here that we're going to stay. That's the idea of the Christian. That's the idea of unity. This is where we're at. This is where we're going to stay, because I do not want to empty the cross of its power, and I know that you do not either. And so he says one of the ways this happens is when we're just idolatrous towards each other. And we do that, don't we? We are idolatrous towards one another. Somebody came up and said, you know, Paul there, he's preaching that Jesus Christ didn't send him to baptize. So see, baptism isn't important. Well, you know, you're like 70 years old. You've written four books and you've been, you know, preaching for half of your life. I mean, I I you've gotta be right, right? <laughs> you've gotta be right. No, because that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying his purpose was not baptism, it was the execution of the gospel. Teaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, which says you must be baptized <laughs> to be saved. He just said, you baptize, I'm here to preach. Baptism is still necessary, but we could twist it around, couldn't we? And if he had enough letters after his name, if he had written enough books, published enough articles, taught enough classes, uh, made enough money, had enough people inviting to congregations for meetings, uh, why he must be the shining example of everything that's perfect, right? No. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's saying they've become idolatrous. Were you baptized into me? Is Christ divided in some way? No. No, he says that none of that is true. Truth is not truth because the elder said it. Or the deacon taught it. Or the preacher did a sermon on it. Or the pillar of the congregation who everybody loves and and, and venerates. It's not truth because they say it. Or they spoke it with conviction. I could stand up here and tell you the moon's made out of cheese with conviction like you would not believe. And Frank will back me up on this. If I twist the Scriptures around long enough, I can show you where it's at. But the fact of the matter is it's a lie. And it doesn't matter how much conviction I can do that with. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the life. He was crucified for us. He was glorified for us. He is truth. Did Jesus say that? I believe it. Well, he didn't say that. I don't believe it. Isn't that a little rude? Isn't that a little closed-minded? Isn't that a little restrictive? Have you ever heard those words? I've heard those words all my life. You're so restrictive. You're so closed-minded. I even love it when people call me a Pharisee. You're being a Pharisee. You're like those lawyers that crucified Jesus. Oh, thank you. Thank you, that's the best compliment I could possibly ever get. I'm just like the scumbags who nailed him on a cross and hung him between heaven and earth. Thanks. No, no, but that's, that's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do to one another, for one another. We believe things that aren't true just because somebody speaks them with conviction or somebody is someone that we respect or we love. And Paul says, don't do that. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, he says there in verse 17, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Imagine that, please. How powerful is the cross? How powerful is the death of Jesus Christ? How powerful? (laughs) Think about it just for a moment. No matter how many people live on the earth, For however many centuries, or centuries beyond that, or centuries before, the cross is so powerful that it can save them all for all eternity. That's how powerful it is. And Paul says it can be emptied of its power. That just blows me away. That is such an amazing message. The cross can be emptied of its power. That is horrifying. That is very sobering to me. And Paul says it can be done with one thing. Eloquent speech. <laughs> Cleverness. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying there. That's, that sounds pretty good. I, I kind of like that. I, that's pretty neat. Is that what the Bible says? It doesn't matter. I know that it may not be what the Bible says, but it sounds really cool when he says it. It sounds really cool when she says it. <clears throat> Do you know how many books of prophecy there are written by men and women that didn't know anything about the Bible? Alan G. White, you know the Smith dude, you know you name them. You can name all of them. Self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses of God that wrote countless things, had countless people following them, and they didn't know the Bible from the almanac. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. These false teachers throughout history have served to empty the cross of its power because of their eloquent Clever speech. Their ability to write. Their ability to speak. Lies. Just like their father. Like we learned this morning, right? Your father is not God. Your father is the devil because you speak just like him. He lies. He's all about the lie. Jesus Christ is all about the truth. See, today we say, well, that's a very polished orator there. He's very talented. We say, you know, yeah, he's uh, we like our preacher. He's very charismatic. So what? I told you, some of the greatest preachers <clears throat> I've ever heard put me to sleep during the sermon. Because I was a note writer. I love looking out and seeing you guys, some of you guys write notes. You know, you're sitting there. Uh, Brother Jennings, back in the day, you know, he's passed away now, <laughs> so I'm sorry to say. But he would sit there and he would pray and I'd be sitting there writing and I would just kind of, man, that guy's boring. You know, he'd, he'd make a doorknob fall off. You know, I mean, it's just boring. You know, just to hear it. He would kind con- And I mean, just go and go at it. And he could go at it for 45 an hour. He'd just go at it, man. And I'd just barely get enough notes. And I remember going home thinking, man, I need a nap or something. That guy bored me to tears. And then that evening, I'd open up my notebook and I'd be reading my notes and I'd go, whoa... I never thought about that before. That's right. Look at that. Because I have a terrible memory, as many of you know. I have a terrible memory, so if I don't write it down, it doesn't exist. See, that's the thing. So I would write it all down, even in my sleep, you know, just kind of nodding off. I'm writing down what he says, and then all of a sudden I go back and look at it, and I think, wow. And talk about talking to him. Talk to him for 10 minutes. You could ask him the hardest question in the world, and you would get the wisest answer you could ever think of. I think, mean, no wonder both of his sons are preachers. How could they be anything else? <laughs> you know, they just had no choice. They had him walking around the house spouting philosophy and, and all this logic and spirituality all day. They couldn't be anything else but preachers. I know Boyd, you know Boyd Jennings. Boyd just could, he worked, he worked and he hated every job he ever had. He was wanting to be a preacher so bad. He even told me one time, you know, the money's great, but I'm tired of making money. I want to go out and preach. I'm like, man, aren't we nuts or something? We're just out of our minds. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The, the greatest things don't come from polished oration or charismatic delivery, but just the delivery of the gospel plain and true. Can we remember that? Can we believe that? The gospel is the power of the cross. The gospel is the only element necessary for unity. It has substance, not showmanship, although it is very beautiful, very poetic, very pleasing to read for the most part. It's like a, a preacher friend of mine told me one time, he said, Joe, he goes, I want you to read a, a passage, uh but and you you'll appreciate this because he looks at me and he goes, but I, I really want you to do it in a in a very positive way. Okay because i'm known for being negative you know and and i and i told him i said what's negative about the bible do you know what he wrote back to me he texted back to me well the passages that convince us of sin and i wrote him back and i said you think that's negative That's the only thing that brings us to liberty. That's the only thing that brings us to salvation. What is negative about that? It breaks my heart every time I hear somebody say something like that. I want you to read this passage. Like Jared said, you go to the self-help section, spirituality at Barnes & Noble, and you get one of those little books. The passages we read this morning are not going to be quoted in those books. Okay, they're not going to be there. Because people don't want to hear that. They want to hear the good stuff. They don't want to hear the passages that convict us of sin. (laughs) Because that's the only thing that can save their souls. Strange, isn't it? Strange. The other passages are there to build us up, yes. The other passages are there to show us the grace, the blessing, the salvation that is available in God. But those other ones are there to keep us straight. To keep us in unity. To keep us understanding who we are so we don't forget. That's what they're there for. I must never forget that I'm this sinful worm standing before the throne of God in His grace. And I have to show appreciation for that in every way I can. And today I'm going to fail at it probably about a hundred times. How about you? But I know that. I know that. I'm not lying to myself about that. And that will be regretted each and every time it happens. And that's what makes us Christians. And that's what makes us love one another. And that's what keeps us in unity. Because you're human and I'm human. So let's try to put that away. <laughs> let's try to do something greater than that. That's the lesson of Corinth. And Paul is going to go into more and more detail as we learn this letter more and more. And so as we leave this, this assembly today and we go on into the rest of our lives for the week, what about that cross? You and I have a, have a very serious decision to make. Are we going to embrace it or are we going to empty it of its power? What are we going to do? And we have to be honest. If you are not baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, you have not experienced the power that that cross has for you. And it's not some elated, you know, visionary kind of experience. It's the knowledge that you have come in contact with the blood of Christ that saves you from your sins. It's the only thing that you can do. And any sin you commit after that point, He will advocate for you. Isn't that beautiful? Who wouldn't want to be baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins? And if you are a Christian, do you still embrace it? (laughs) Or are you going about the business of emptying it of its power? I can't answer that for you and you can't answer it for me. We all have to answer these questions. What answer do you have? Whatever it is, please, if you need anything, let it be known while we stand together.